Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts chapter 5. We are in Acts chapter 5. Well, in the book of Acts, we have seen the birth of the church. Uh, The very first local church in Jerusalem has begun, and what a beginning it was. Jesus had told his disciples that the birth of the church would mark the beginning of the restoration of God's worldwide kingdom, yes, starting in Jerusalem, but expanding to the ends of the earth. We've seen in the past few chapters the church grow mightily as thousands of people are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus and experiencing his forgiveness and his transformative power. Acts 4 told us that great grace was upon them all. God's grace was working so powerfully and so supernaturally in the hearts of these church members that it manifested itself in unity and in love and in an outpouring of radical generosity. Everyone was meeting everyone's needs. As a matter of fact, there were even those in the church who were moved to sell their own property and and give the money to the church so that it might be distributed to the neediest among them. Acts 4 says also that great power <clears throat> was with the church as the, as the gospel was going out from this church into the community. They couldn't stop telling people about Jesus so that even more people might be brought into their fellowship. Those early days of the church were great days. They were heady days. They were glorious times, but they were not perfect times. Never romanticize the early church. Some people do that. They romanticize the early church as if it was just perfect and pristine and never had any problems. The early church was not perfect and faced great challenges and great struggles, and the church from its very beginning has had a great enemy, Satan, who rages against the church, and he'll do everything that he can to distract it, to hinder its progress, uh, to, to cause the people of God great grief and even destroy and and, and ruin individual local churches. And so in Acts 4, we also saw great opposition to the church. Satan has stirred up the religious leaders who threatened the disciples and ordered them to never again preach in the name of Jesus. But the disciples won't listen to them. They, they, they tell these, these uh, persecutors, we cannot help but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. But the devil does not give up easily. And when it comes to his attacks on the church, there are two main ways that he assaults. One way is externally, where the the devil, using outside forces, obvious enemies, pressure, persecution, uh, he he externally puts, puts pressure on the church, but he also attacks internally which is what we're going to see in today's text. He, he loves to find ways to get inside the church and disrupt it and weaken it from within. And, and what I want you to try to consider uh, from today, today's text, uh, I want you to think about this not from some sort of distant and detached kind of way. Instead, I want you to think about how this text might relate to us here at Harbin's church. Because what we're about to read is, is way more relevant to us today than we might think. So with that said, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our great and glorious God. We are in Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> We're going to start in verse 1 and read on down through verse 16. Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property 
And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy and inspired word, and I pray that you would silence the enemy of our souls this morning and open our ears and our eyes so that we might best see and hear what the Spirit has to say to Harbin's church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, there are four things that I want us to see in this text today. The first thing that we see is an act of hypocrisy, an act of hypocrisy. Now, this story is, is actually best understood against the backdrop of the previous section in Acts chapter 4, where you've got the members of the church, they're caring for one another, they're meeting one another's needs, and we're introduced to a man named Barnabas, which is actually not his real name. Uh, You can turn back with me to chapter 4 for his real name. Fun fact, his name actually is Joseph. I bet you most people don't know about that, because that, that name is just not really mentioned regularly. Uh, It's mentioned here, but after this, he's called Barnabas. Chapter 4, verse 36 says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Joseph here, aka Barnabas, is meant to serve as an exemplary illustration of the love and the sacrificial giving uh, of the early church to care for the needy in their congregation. 
And, and Barnabas in particular is known for his, his kindness and character. Uh, and in fact, he is, he is so well known for this, this wonderful attitude that he has that he gets this nickname. The, the apostles just dub him Barnabas, son of encouragement. And Barnabas is going to end up becoming a major figure and leader in the church. He's actually mentioned over 20 times in the book of Acts. We'll pay closer attention to Barnabas later on as as this book progresses. Here, we meet him for the first time, and we see him doing good. He sells this field. He takes 100% of the proceeds. He gives it to the church. Now, Barnabas here is not only mentioned to serve as, as an example of the charitable attitude of the Jerusalem church, but he's also here to serve as a foil for Ananias and Sapphira. And you can know that by looking at the first word of chapter 5, verse 1. What, what's the first word? But. That's an important word. And it's showing us that Luke wants us to compare and contrast Barnabas with Ananias. Because at first blush, they appear to be the same, right? On the surface, they seem to be the same. They, they're both wealthy. They, they both sell property. They both give money to the church. Outwardly, they look the same. But once you look beneath the surface, there's actually big differences between the two. So Ananias sells his property, and verse 2 says that with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the first question we have to ask is, so? <laughs> so what? Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, what specifically is the sin here? And some people think, well, well, maybe the sin is, is that he didn't give everything to God. He gave only a part of the proceeds and not all. He, he didn't do what, what Barnabas did. But that's not the problem. There was no specific mandate from God or the apostles for everybody in the church to sell everything and give all the proceeds to the church. What was going on here was totally free will offerings. In fact, that very point is driven home by Peter in verse 4 when he confronts Ananias and he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, you didn't have to sell the land, Ananias. You, you could have kept it, and that would have been just fine. Or you could have sold it, and you could have done whatever you wanted to with the proceeds. You could have given all of it. You could have given half of it. You could have given 10%. You could have given none. You, you were free to, to do what, whatever you wanted to with it. Others say, well, well, maybe the main issue was greed. Maybe it was greed. Well, maybe, but... But again, remember, Ananias was free to do whatever he wanted to with the proceeds. He could have put it in his savings account. He could have put it all in his IRA, whatever, no problem. So if his sole motivation was greedy gain, he could have easily just kept it all for himself. So if there was a measure of greed in his actions, it wasn't the only thing. As a matter of fact, I don't even think it was the main thing. Because Peter doesn't rebuke him for greediness. And verse 3, Peter calls him out for what sin? It's right there in the text. He calls him out for lying. He lied about the amount of property that, that the amount that he sold the property for. Uh, they had actually sold the property for more than the amount claimed, and they kept back the rest for themselves secretly. And so, watch this, they lied 
by giving the church the wrong impression. Namely, uh, they were given the impression that they were giving all of the proceeds from the sale. They were giving the impression that they were more generous than they actually were. Uh, that they were just like Martibus. It was an act of, of underhanded deceitfulness that, that Peter specifically zeroes in on. Not greed, but hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy is, don't you? The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word hypocrites, which was used to refer to an actor, a stage player. In the, in the Greek theater in the ancient world, actors wore large masks to, to cover their, their faces and, and, and to mark the character that they were playing. And so, and so a hypocrite is someone who's playing a role, who's wearing a mask, He's appearing and pretending to be one thing, but underneath the mask, he is something completely different. That's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. Now, now why? Why would someone do something like this? Well, that's essentially what the Apostle Peter is going to ask in the next couple of verses where we see an act of confrontation. An act of confrontation. What is about to happen, I think, is in a public church meeting, and it's time for the offering. And just as earlier when Barnabas, who had sold his property, came forward with his offering and laid the proceeds at the feet of the apostles, so now Ananias is coming forward with his offering. He he obviously thinks that he's going to get away with this hypocrisy, but what happens next is totally unexpected. Verse 3, Peter approaches him and says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, obviously, God must have revealed to Peter what actually happened. So Peter knows what happened. Now Peter is probing in regards to why. Why has Satan filled your heart? Now, that's a shocking question, especially in our modern Western 21st century world that completely discounts and laughs at the idea of the devil. Many are okay with the idea of God, but the idea of the devil is mocked by many. But here we learn that Satan can actually fill someone's heart to influence them towards evil. That should be very sobering to you. Friends, Acts 5 is essentially telling us that the devil goes to church. The devil goes to church. Don't think in, in, that, that just because we're all gathered here together this morning and we are all praying and we're all reading scripture and we're all singing songs and we're, we're listening to a sermon, don't think that just because of that we're in some sort of bubble that excludes Satan and his agents. Friends, the devil is real. Ephesians 6 says that we wrestle against powers and principalities and dark, malevolent, evil forces in the heavenly places. And it doesn't say we wrestle against these forces except on Sunday morning between 1045 and 1215. Don't believe that for a minute. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Because Satan does not just attack the church from without, but also from within, and he will exercise influence through people in the church who are not sober-minded and watchful, and we would be foolish to discount that. But on the other hand, we also discover from Peter's questions 
that ultimately no one can blame the devil for their sin. The devil can tempt, the devil can influence, but that never alleviates anyone from personal responsibility and accountability. We know this because Peter, after recognizing the influence of Satan, then moves on from Satan, and in verse 4, he gets down to the ultimate issue. He says, why is it that you, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your hearts? Here, the finger is not pointed at the devil, but right at Ananias. You see, when somebody sins, he can never use the excuse, well, the devil made me do it. Ultimately, the deed of Ananias was something that was contrived in his heart, which is a reminder of one of the most important spiritual principles that you could ever learn. We talk about it a lot around here at Harbin's, namely that all of the deeds that you do outwardly are reflections of what is going on in you inwardly. Now, many of us know better than to blame the devil for our sins, but often we will nevertheless blame something external, circumstances, situations, other people, outside influences. Well, the reason I blew up and yelled and cussed you out is because you disrespected me. You always disrespect me and you push me to the limit. Or the reason I fell into lust is because those people on the beach were dressed in a certain way and they shouldn't be dressing that way and it's their faults. No, no, no. Acts 5 reminds us that every act we commit, every deed we do is first contrived by us in our hearts. Long before the external action of sin, uh, the, the lying, the greed, the lust, the outburst of anger, the bad thoughts, long before that is manifested visibly, it is existing in your heart invisibly. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says to guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. The heart is the steering wheel for your entire life. Where the heart goes, so you go. And all the devil can do is play off of things that are already in your heart. You could put it this way. You could say that in your heart are burning certain sinful desires, And what Satan does is he comes along and he just throws gasoline on them. But ultimately, the sin comes from you and not from him. James puts it this way in James 1. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, how you guard your heart is a topic big enough for its own sermon. We don't have time to get into all of that now, but but ways you would guard your heart would include prayer, uh, being in transparent, non-hypocritical relationships within the church body, and of course, filling your heart and your mind with the truth of God's word, meditating on the scriptures. As the psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. But evidently, Ananias had not been guarding his heart, and so he was easily lured away by sinful desires and satanic lies. And so Peter confronts him and asks, why is it, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? That's a great question. Ananias doesn't have a chance to answer, but it is a good question. And I don't think it's a hard one for us to answer. What is often the motivation for religious, hypocritical behavior? 
especially in the church. Let's go back to the early origins of the word hypocrite and this idea of the theater. What does the good stage actor get after a great performance? After he wears the mask well and he impresses everyone with his performance, what does he get? Applause, accolades, respect, pats on the back. This is what Ananias and Sapphira were looking for. They wanted to be seen as generous and spiritual and godly without the inconvenience of being generous and spiritual and godly. You follow that? They're more interested in the applause of men than the approval of God. There's a verse in John chapter 12 that really sums up the heart issue for Ananias and Sapphira and so many people. And uh, in John 12, we're, we're told that there, there were many among the religious authorities that actually wanted to believe in Jesus, but they never go all the way. They never go the distance. They never publicly confess faith in him. Why? Because they're afraid. They're afraid of being put out of the synagogue. They're afraid of looking bad. They're afraid of losing the respect of people that they admire. And then John says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They wanted their own glory and their own names exalted more than they cared about Jesus' name being exalted. They, they didn't love Jesus, they loved themselves. And at the heart of, of this craving for human approval is a sin that the Bible calls the fear of man. Ever heard of that? The fear of man. Uh, the craving for human approval and an obsessive anxiety over human disapproval is the fear of man. If you're always concerned about what other people think about you, if you're obsessed with being seen in a positive light by others, if you're lying and manipulating circumstances so that it puts you in a good light, it makes you look awesome, you're in bondage to the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. It captures your heart. And as the heart goes, so you go. Now, here's the challenge for us. It's really easy for us to look down on Ananias and Sapphira and say, well, I can't believe it. I can't believe that they would actually do something like that, to, to be such hypocrites, to pretend that there's something that they are not so that everyone will think well of them. I can't believe that. Friend, the reason stories like this are in the Bible are not for you to say, thank God I'm not like those people. Instead, that the scripture should be like a mirror that God is holding up before you. And the question is, do you see something familiar in the mirror? Do you see yourself in these scriptures? So as we hold the mirror up of the word up to us, what might hypocrisy look like here? Among us. At Harbin's church. I see some people sweating. Here's just a few examples. I'm sure you could think of more. Maybe you pretend that your marriage is really, really good. Everything is just fine. And the reality is, everything is falling apart. And you need help. 
If you're giving others in your church family the impression that your marriage is awesome, that, that things are going great, but in reality there's these deep struggles and, and, and you, need, you need others to come alongside you to help you through this, but out of a concern for your image, you never let anyone in the church in on those struggles, but you project something different. Brothers and sisters, that's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. If you're, if you're pretending among us that things are better than they are, maybe you spend a lot of time on social media and you like to put up spiritual posts and Bible verses and things that just make you look extra righteous and extra holy. You know, you've got that picture of the coffee cup next to an open Bible with the verses highlighted. And you write, great time with the Lord this morning. And you're basking in all the likes and the thumbs up from your friends. But all the while, nobody knows about your ongoing anger raging and blowing up at your spouse and your kids every day to the point where your family is afraid of you. Or maybe it's not anger, but some other pattern of sin that has reduced your spiritual life to shambles and you refuse to deal with it and confess that to others in, in the church for prayer and accountability and help. You, you would just rather just, just, just enjoy and bask in all of the likes from people thinking that you're better than you are. That's hypocrisy. Maybe you pretend that pornography is not a problem in your life. I I know some people struggle with it, but that's just not an issue for me. But from time to time, you find yourself drawn to clicking on websites that you know that you shouldn't. If you're living that secret double life and you aren't honest with anyone in the church about that, that's hypocrisy. If you're a child, a teenager, and you just come here just because your parents do and you've got to come, and you pretend you're living a Christian life and you're doing that because that makes your parents happy and makes your pastor happy and you're really not living a Christian life, not in here. Monday through Saturday, you're a totally different person, but no one, no one here knows about that. That's hypocrisy. Now, I should clarify, hypocrisy is not simply struggling against sin, We all struggle against sin. That doesn't make you a hypocrite. Instead, hypocrisy is intentionally building a false image of yourself to deliberately make everyone in the church think that you're more godly, more spiritual, more together than you actually are. It's pretending to be the kind of Christian that you're not. And and, and so you need to ask yourself, as Peter asked Ananias, why are you contriving this hypocrisy? What's going on in your heart that is leading you to do this? Is it pride? Do you enjoy the applause and approval of men so much that you will be dishonest? Or maybe there's a sense of embarrassment. Maybe you're afraid that if you were really honest about yourself and you let down the walls and and, that you're afraid that people would just think of you differently. Friends, that's pride. And could it be that like Ananias and Sapphira, you care more about looking holy than actually being holy? That it's more important to you what others think than what God thinks. I have a feeling that all of us here have some experience with hypocrisy. Certainly, I don't stand up here as a man who has it all together. I've had deep struggles in the area of worrying about what other people think in my life, uh, in, in, as I think on past things that I have done, and, and, and even, you know, 
concerned about projecting certain things because of how that might reflect on me. I've, I've fallen into that before. I bet you some of you have as well. My hope, my hope <clears throat> is that Harbin's church can be a church that is a safe place for hypocrites to drop the masks. To drop the masks. I think that there are masks worn by thousands and thousands of people all over the country every Sunday in church. Let's not do that here. Let's, let's drop the masks. Go, go to your pastors or, or go to another church member and, and just say, I'm not okay. I need help. I need prayer. I need counsel. I need accountability. I've dealt with this for 10 years and I've never told a soul. I'm going to come clean now. Is there somebody in here that needs to come clean? Don't let the fear of man, whether that be the craving of man's approval or anxiety over man's disapproval, but both are forms of sinful pride and stem from the fear of man. Don't let the fear of man cause Satan to fill your heart with the lie that the glory that comes from man is better than the glory that comes from God. Hypocrisy is a very serious sin. And we see that as we keep reading, as we are confronted with an act of judgment. An act of judgment. Peter says in verse 4, You've not lied to man, but to God. And Ananias heard these words. He fell down, breathed his last. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. God struck him down right where he stood. Verse 7, we're told that after an interval of about three hours, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. Verse 8, Peter says to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, for so so much. By the way, notice that Sapphira actually has a chance to do the right thing and confess. Ananias wasn't given that that opportunity. I don't know why. Maybe maybe Ananias is the head of the home, the spiritual leader of the home. there's there's, there's, There's additional weight and strictness in regards to how he is handled. I don't know. Sapphira has a chance here, but she misses it. She stubbornly persists in the lie. And then verse 9, Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Now I wonder if there are any of you here that are thinking, that's a bit too harsh. <laughs> that, that judgment is over the top. Be honest. I mean, yeah, they, they, they shouldn't have lied, but is it really that bad? Are there worse sins? They lied, but, but, but still, I mean, they did give something. A, a lot of needy people were helped by, by the money that they did give, right? Some people didn't give anything. So, so, Is it really that big of a deal? Is it really worthy of death? At the beginning of this chapter, Luke gives us a clue regarding how serious this is. Luke says in verse 2 that Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds. That Greek word translated kept back for himself, that's a rare word in the Bible. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that, that would have been the Bible that Luke would have been familiar with and read from, that word is found only one time in, in, in the Old Testament, just once. And it's in Joshua chapter 7, 
Verse 1. Do you remember what happened in Joshua 7? Here's a, here's, here's a hint. It was something bad. Need more help? Ever heard of Achan? Remember him? The word used to describe what Ananias did is the same word to describe what Achan did in Joshua 7 when he kept back some of the spoils for himself, spoils that were supposed to be devoted to God, spoils that everyone thought was going to God. And in Joshua 6, in the battle of Jericho, God intervened with power and might and caused Israel to triumph and advance further into the promised land. But Achan saw some things that he liked. Saw some, some gold, <clears throat> some clothes, and he kept back those things for himself. And he hid those things so that nobody else would know. But God knew. God saw And in the next battle, Israel was badly defeated and they ran away ashamed and humiliated. And God reveals to Joshua that they lost because there was undealt with hidden, unrepentant sin in the camp of God's people. And God says that his blessing will not be upon Israel, that Israel will not be able to move forward into the promised land and be victorious in their mission while such impurity remained undealt with among the people of God. Achan was engaged in deep, deep hypocrisy, pretending to have given all to the Lord when he really didn't. He he thought he could fool God, but the story ends terribly for Achan. He is exposed, and God supernaturally reveals who the offender was, and Achan ends up being stoned to death, his body burned. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary in Acts, writes that the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts where the story of Achan is, to the book of Joshua. And the lesson is that God is a holy God who will not be trifled with. He will not be mocked. But but in addition, his people are to be a holy people. And just as Israel could not move forward in strength and victory in fulfilling God's mission, if there was high-handed, undealt with sin in the midst of God's people, so the church cannot move forward in victory in fulfilling God's mission if willful, hard-hearted, high-handed, unrepentant sin is trivialized and not taken seriously. Undealt with sin in the heart of just one church member left unaddressed, can weaken and compromise and corrupt the entire church, hamstringing its effectiveness in the world. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 5, where the church had a member who was engaged in unrepentant, high-handed sin, and the church didn't deal with it. Not not only did the church not deal with it, the church boasted about it. They bragged about it. They were probably boasting about how much grace that they were extending and how they were such a, a loving and tolerant church. And and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's point is that tolerance of a little sin will spread like leaven in the oven and, and, and get everywhere 
and weaken and corrupt the entire church. Sin must be taken seriously because the church can only move forward with power when it moves forward in collective holiness and in respect for the holiness of God. Now again, we're not coming down hard on someone who is struggling with sin and they are honest and humble about it and they want help. We, we want to be a church that is patient and gentle with a sincere struggler. Instead, we're, we're talking about those who are in willful, ongoing, hypocritical rebellion against God and they dress it up with religious activity. God is not okay with that. And we shouldn't be either. And so the answer is yes, what Ananias and Sapphira did is a big deal. They lied. And who did they lie to? In verse 3, who does Peter say Ananias lied to? The Holy Spirit. In verse 4, who does Peter say Ananias lied to? God. By the way, here we have a great proof text on the deity of the Holy Spirit. To lie to the Holy Spirit is identical to lying to God. The Holy Spirit is not an it, not an impersonal force. You can't lie to an impersonal force. Holy Spirit's not some lesser being beneath God. The Holy Spirit is the living God just as much as the Father and the Son are. And Peter says, you have not lied to men, you've lied to Him. And Peter's point here is to drive home the seriousness of what they have done The most heinous sin and the biggest offense is not what they have done to their fellow church members, as bad as that is, but how they have treated the Lord himself. And brothers and sisters, there are no small sins in God's economy. There are no trivial sins in God's economy. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, explains that our sin is not some minor peccadillo or small mistake. Instead, he says, every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. Therefore, every single sin, whether it be murder or a so-called white lie, is worthy of the death penalty and eternal condemnation in hell. And oh, how churches today need to recover something of the sense of the holiness of God and the seriousness of our own sin. By the way, you can't can't fully understand the seriousness of your own sin until you understand the holiness of God. We laugh at sin. We downplay sin. We make jokes about sin. We're entertained by sin in music and on TV. Churches flirt with worldliness and do it in the name of freedom. Hey, we're free in Christ. We aren't legalists. We can do whatever whatever we want. But brothers and sisters, God did not save us so that we could do whatever we want. Jesus didn't die for your independent autonomy. He He didn't die so you could be the captain of your own ship determining what is right in your own eyes. Indeed, he died to save you from that kind of destructive lifestyle. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he died for all, why? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
Likewise, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy, there's that word, you're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The holy God formed the church to be a holy nation for the purpose of mission, to share the light of Jesus in a dark world. That's what that verse means. But how can the church be a light when the church itself walks in darkness, walks in sin? As John MacArthur has said, a a church that's just like the world has nothing to offer the world. True enough. Not that there are perfect people in the church. Again, every single one of us struggles against sin. If you're struggling against sin, good. (laughs) Praise God. It should be a struggle. It should be a vicious tooth and claw fight. You wrestle not against flesh and blood. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira was that they were not struggling against their sin at all. There was no struggle. They're at peace with it, living in it, walking in it, flaunting it before God, and they thought like Achan, they could get away with it. And striking them down, God demonstrated the seriousness of sin. This is not the normal way God deals with sin in the church. <laughs> if, this, if, uh, if, you, if you're new to this church, you can relax. <laughs> this isn't the normal way that God deals with sin in the church, and thank God for that. Otherwise, in addition to a pastor, the church would need to hire a mortician. And in all honesty, you'd have to find new pastors. (laughs) And in all honesty, how many of us would be sitting here right now? The normal way God deals with unrepentant sin in the church is not death. One of the main ways he deals with unrepentant sin in the church is through a process called church discipline. Uh, the New Testament lays out this, this process of a, of a church member gently and lovingly coming alongside another church member whose sins have become known, first privately, but, but if there is resistance, the next step would be to bring in other church members to, to confront that person in sin, and, and if there's no headway and, and continued resistance and stubbornness and high-handedness, the end result isn't death, but eventually removal from church membership, where the church publicly declares that the offender is not living like a Christian and we as a church do not endorse this behavior. And so the offender is no longer regarded as a member, not for the sake of making the church perfect, but for the pursuit of increased purity in the church, for the protection of the church so that Satan might not gain a foothold and weaken the church from within, sapping its strength and undermining its mission to the world. What's more, church discipline is not just for the sake of the church, but also for the good of the disciplined member, with with the hopes that the seriousness by which the church deals with sin causes the offender to come to their senses and repent from their destructive path and be reintegrated into the people of God. That's the normal way that God deals with sin in the church. That's how he's mandated us to deal with sin in the church. But he doesn't do it here in Acts 5. This is an unusual situation. I mean, it is removal from membership, but ay, ay, ay. 
in this situation, God judges swiftly and severely to help set this young church on the right trajectory and to teach them a very important lesson that they will never forget. And namely, that's to never, ever take sin lightly because God doesn't take it lightly. And so we have an act of hypocrisy, we have an act of confrontation, an act of judgment, and finally, and here's where we see the grace of God, we have a response of fear, a response of fear. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. Now, you may find it odd that I would associate fear with the grace of God. Isn't fear a bad thing? Isn't fear a curse and not a blessing? Well, that depends. The fear of man is bad. But on the other hand, the fear of God? Oh, that is so, so good. And what is the fear of God? It's a deep reverence and respect and awe of God. While the fear of man leads to concern over what man says and what man thinks, the fear of God leads to a concern over what God says and what God thinks. The fear of God leads you to regard God above all things. The fear of God leads the believer to say, God's put the line here, and I'm not crossing that line. I am not putting God to the test. No way. That's the the fear of the Lord. The Bible says elsewhere that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's more, let's remember that the fear of the Lord, far from being a curse, was actually foreseen by the prophet Jeremiah to be one of the blessings of the new covenant. You know, in Old Testament Israel, the fear of the Lord was not widespread, which is why by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, Israel is largely apostate, having abandoned God. But Jeremiah promises a a new covenant, a better covenant, a new covenant community that will experience blessings that are greater than than the old. And it says in Jeremiah 32, God says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. Notice there that the fear of the Lord is for the good of the people. The fear of God helps people to not turn away from the Lord and go down a a self-destructive, horrible path. And that's what we're seeing here in Acts 5, holy fear, as people embrace the the presence of God and the reality of God and the holiness of God, as they take sin seriously, it actually helps the church to grow stronger and purer and more loving and more on fire for God. And so, what's great here is that we we actually see the schemes of the devil backfiring, right? Right? In the next few verses, in in the wake of this, this... this newfound fear, we see the church continuing to advance with power and, and, and the apostles are out doing signs and wonders and, 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 and healing people and, and, and casting out demons. And, and, it, and it says, interestingly, um, it's in verse 13, none of the rest dared join them. Now that's interesting. I, I find verse 13 absolutely fascinating, y'all. None of the rest dared join them. In other words, none of them were daring to join the church. Word got out that at their last church service, two people dropped dead. I'm not going there. I'll go to the church down the road where they, you know, 
do giveaways. Look under the seat and you'll win whatever. That's where I'm going. That, 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 got, that got over there, that's too much for me. I'm staying away from that church. Now, now here's what's interesting about all this to me. I thought a lot about this. In our, in our contemporary church context, we would see this as a bad thing because we want people to join the church, right? We want, we want people to come here. We want everybody to come here. We don't want to scare people away. We want to attract people. And very often churches will try to attract people and get people to join by all kinds of things. <laughs> Giveaways or you know, providing entertainment, really good music downplaying talk of sin, downplaying talk of the holiness of God. But here in Acts, people are not daring to join them. But then here's also, this is equally fascinating. Verse 14, it says that more than ever believers are added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So you've got some people that are like, no way I'm joining that church. And then you've got others who are beating down the doors to get in. Multitudes, it says, of men and women. Which tells me that because of the church's emphasis on the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God and the purity of the church, it repelled the kind of people that did not need to be among them. And it attracted the right kind of people, those who were sincerely being drawn to the Lord and transformed by Him. And this is why I say Satan's scheme backfired. This all led to, to church growth, this, this, this emphasis on the, the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. God used the situation to instill a new level of fear for the good of the church, which made the church more effective in evangelism and witness to the community. It says, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. How does that happen? Well, people talk about the Lord. People evangelize. And how, how does an emphasis on the holiness of God and his hatred of sin actually make evangelism effective? I like how R.C. Sproul puts it. He says, when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We're spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. That's really good. Really good. That attention and that, that right focus on, on wrath and justice just help us to see God's love and grace and mercy all the more. Once we realize that every sin, whether it's murder or adultery or deceitful hypocrisy, once we realize that every sin is, is an assault on God's character, we're going to be more shocked than ever when we read the Bible but not shocked that God killed Ananias and Sapphira, but shocked that God has not executed that kind of justice on all of us, but that he instead sent his son Jesus into the world to receive the ultimate penalty for the sins of the world. On Jesus were put all the sins of his people, the sins of lust, of anger, pride, fear of man, hypocrisy, and so much more. And God executed not his people, but Jesus He poured out his full wrath for the sins 
on Jesus. Jesus paid the price for his people so that anyone who trusts in Jesus would never have to experience that wrath, but, but that we might enjoy everlasting forgiveness and life. And so it is against the backdrop of our dark sins that the light of the gospel of grace shines all the brighter. If you're here as an unbeliever, I urge you today to repent of your sins, turn to God, place your hope in Jesus and what he did on the cross. As powerful and as overwhelming as the judgment of God is against sins, his mercy and grace are equally powerful and overwhelming. If you're here as a Christian, but have fallen into the sin of hypocrisy, Brother, sister, God is calling you this morning to step out of the shadows and come clean. Come clean. It feels good to have a good conscience. You'll love it in the end. It'll be hard at first, but you'll be so glad that you did. Fear the Lord, and not just for your own good, but for the good of your church and for the good of our mission into the world. Feel free to come and talk with me or talk with Pastor Jared or, or talk to another Christian here that you trust. Don't let the fear of man stop you. Let the fear of God motivate you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and I pray that it is landing on our hearts with power and conviction where necessary. Father, I pray for Harbin's Community Baptist Church that you will help us to, to be a church that takes sin seriously and, and, and holiness serious, seriously so then that we might also take grace and mercy seriously and that we might be more fervent and on fire evangelists telling everyone about not just the holiness of God or the wrath and justice of God, but the mercy of God that's available to all who call on his name. Father, I pray for anyone this morning living that double life in fear of, of stepping out of the light or out of the shadows and into the light. Father, I pray that this text would be a source of, of help and strength and encouragement for that person to do the right thing. Thank you so much, God, that... <laughs> What you did with Ananias and Sapphira, that is not your normal way of doing things. It, it was, a, it was a, 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 a message to all of us about the seriousness of sin. And thank you that you offer so much grace and mercy for all of us who deserve death, no, no less than they did. So Father, help us now to to move forward in light of this word preached. Holy Spirit, apply this word to our hearts and help us to, to not just be hearers of the word, but also doers. In Jesus' name, amen.